0: Who is Jesus? Secular history and all the major religions of the world agree he existed, but they have very different answers as to who he is. Hi I'm Yvonne Brand and welcome to Bible 805. In our podcast today we're going to look at the history that verifies his existence, the beliefs about him that have no basis in history at all, to help us answer the most important question of time and eternity, and that is, who is do you think Jesus is. Our view of Jesus is really what defines us. Karl Barth said, Show me your Christology and I will tell you who you are. Everybody has a view of Jesus, ranging from the idea that he was just a myth, to, well, he lived and he was a good man, to the Christian belief that he is God in human flesh and the only Savior. Now, in addition to Christianity, that isn't the only religion that believes Jesus existed. The Hindus, the Buddhists, and all Eastern religions, they all say he existed, and we'll talk about exactly. How they look at him a little bit later. Islam and the Mormons also say that he existed. They all have a place for Jesus in their religious system, but the Christian view is very unique. There are two verses that really summarize what we believe about Jesus, and the first one is in John 17 3, where it says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent and another key christian viewpoint verse if you will is in john 14:6 where jesus himself says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father through me. In summary, in other words, Christians believe that Jesus is the only Savior. And so it makes it really, really important to look at why we believe what we believe. If our eternity depends on Him, it's worth our time and study. Now, why is it that Christians believe the things they believe? Well, Christians believe what they believe based on the Bible. Well, how do we know we can trust the Bible? I would encourage you to listen to some of my previous podcast, where some of the early ones where I talk about how we know what is true and then how we know the Bible is true, but just in a little bit of a review, truth is what agrees with reality. But then, how do we determine what's reality? Well, I believe I, I studied history and actually got a master's degree in church history from a secular university, and I've, I've been to seminary and did a lot of additional study in church history, and I do believe from that study that history is a very good way to determine what's true, especially what's true in the past. We can't actually go back there, but with archaeology, with coins, with artifacts, with the writings that different people did, we have a pretty good idea of what actually happened. Now, for the reliability and the reality of what happened actually in the Bible, we have massive amounts of textual support. In fact, we have more documents, manuscripts, copies of documents of the Bible than we do any other ancient manuscript. One associated issue that needs to be addressed is the idea that, well, maybe we have all this ancient evidence of the scrolls and the writings in these documents, but how do we know that what we have today agrees with what was in the past? How do we know that the Bible wasn't corrupted over time? In fact, that is one accusation that the Mormon Church makes. They say that the Biblical record was greatly corrupted and that's why a new revelation was needed, and for them that was the Book of Mormon and the various teachings of the early Mormon teachers. Well, we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that no, the texts were not corrupted. And the reason we can say that is something that actually pretty much everybody is familiar with, but they don't really realize how important it is, and that is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now most people have heard of them, but they don't really know why they were such a big deal. Well, here's why. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that these scrolls were buried in these caves in Qumran Prior to, and this is really important, the de- destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, when they got the scrolls out and they opened them up, quite a few of them were exactly the same thing that we have in our Bible. And when I say exactly the same thing, I mean exactly the same thing. The book of Isaiah, for example, they have a scroll that um, is one of the best preserved. And when you compare it, With the book of Isaiah that we have today, they're virtually exact. Maybe a few little scribal errors or whatever. But what this shows is how careful the scribes were in copying the biblical manuscripts and Many other books are like that, that they've been able to compare, but here we have something that was written over 2,000 years ago, and it matches up with our Bibles today. And so you might not want to believe the Bible, you might not want to say that it's divinely inspired. That's okay but you cannot credibly say that the text is corrupted because that just didn't happen. And so I think it's really important that we establish that the Bible is a credible historical source for a study of who Jesus is. And this is so important because, again, you don't have to believe that it's divinely inspired, whatever, but it is helpful to take the New Testament as a credible historical record of his life. Now, Christianity is much more than just credible historical records, but I truly believe that no real religion can say that it's valid if it doesn't agree with real history. And the thesis that I'm making is that Christianity does, and not only the Bible, but there's a number of other sources that verify the thing that we learn in the Bible, and we're going to look at some of them. We—I'll tell you, just give you a real little quick overview of who we're going to look at, and then we'll look at them in more detail. We're going to look at writings by a man that was named Pliny the Younger. We're going to look at Josephus, Tacitus, at some additional Roman emperors. We're also going to look at some of the early Christian writers, and one of the greatest early critics of Christianity to see if they agree with the basic things that are in the Bible. Because one of the things, one of the the biggest, there's a number of stories that are really quite false that circulate around Christianity and one of them is that all the ideas about Jesus being the Son of God, the miracles, and all of these things, that these were stories that were added long, long, long after he lived. Well again, just kinda like the Dead Sea Scrolls show that there's no corruption, these things are absolutely false because if we look at other historical sources that were written shortly after the New Testament or um, about the same time, we can see that they agree completely with what the New Testament tells us. So let's just look at some of these. First of all, Pliny the Younger. He was the governor of Bithynia and he, around 112, He uh, wrote back to the Emperor Trajan, and he asked him how he should conduct the legal proceedings about those accused of being Christians. And he just really didn't know what to do because they were really nice people, and he didn't feel right punishing them. And here's how he describes them. He says, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ, as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath, not to any wicked deeds, but to never commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. I just love that little statement there at the end where he says, food of an ordinary and innocent kind. What he is referring to, of course, is the idea that back then, Christians were accused of being cannibals because they heard, people heard, who weren't Christians, that they gathered together and they ate the body and the blood of someone. Now, they didn't realize of course, that Christians were talking about communion, but the idea that they were cannibals was spread around, and of course, it was false. Then Josephus, he was a Roman historian who lived during the destruction of uh, during the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., and he was able to research and really knew what was going on before and after that time. And then in, in his Antiquities, he talked his massive work on. Jewish history. He talks about Jesus. Now, in the notes, you can see there's some little parenthetical sections that some people think he, that were added later. Now, we don't really have any uh, proof that this is true, other than some people don't like it that he made some statements referring to Jesus as more than just a man. But I'll, I'll read the passage and you can do what you will with it. About this time there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he was one who wrought surprising feats and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly he won over many jews and many of the greeks he was the christ when pilate upon hearing him accused by men of highest standing among us had condemned him to be crucified those who had in the first place come to love him did not give up their affection for him On the third day, he appeared to them restored to life, for the prophets of God had prophesied these and countless other marvelous things about him, and the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. Now again, there is some debate on whether all of that was written by Josephus, but we know he referred to Jesus, to his followers, to what people believed about him. Tacitus lived from A.D. 56 to 117, a little bit after the life of Christ, but still contemporaneous with a lot of the writings of the New Testament. And already at that time in his histories, which is regarded as the foremost history of the Roman times, he talks about how Nero decided to blame the Christians for the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 A.D. And here's what he said. Nero fastened the guilt on a class Hades for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty under the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And the most mischievous superstition, thus checked for the moment, again broke out not only in Judea, but the first source of the evil, not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Now, He's just saying that, you know, we just can't get rid of these people. And by the way, the persecution that broke out after Nero's accusations, that was the one that both Peter and Paul were martyred during. Now then, there were three more uh, emperors of Rome who came shortly after this, and they also mentioned the Christians, Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius. Now, they talked about them in different ways. Trajan replied to that letter that Pliny had sent him, and he said, you don't hunt them down. And if they sacrifice to the gods, they're to be acquitted. Um, He was basically saying, you know, don't be too hard on them. You know, they're good citizens. We don't want to be just sort of killing off good citizens because, you know, whatever. Um, But the most important thing is just how he he mentioned them and affirmed the same things that Pliny said about them. Hadrian, again, uh, was writing to different people throughout the empire on how to handle accusations against Christians. And then Marcus Aurelius, he was the philosopher emperor, and he dealt with them more on philosophical issues, and he really didn't care for them. He said uh, he did not believe that Christians laid down their lives nobly and for the right reasons, but out of sheer opposition and with histrionic display. From his perspective, all the Christians had to do was go through the motions of sacrificing and they would escape death. Their deaths must have seemed unnecessary and fanatical. What he's referring to here is in, back in the ancient world, is Caesar was seen as a god. And not only was he a god, but this was all wrapped up in civil religion and politics. And what you had to do to, support the, to show that you supported the emperor and were a good citizen, is you just had to do this little, once a year, sacrifice to the emperor. Burn some incense to him and say, Caesar is Lord. The Christians would not, could not do that because they said there is only one Lord and one God and Jesus is Lord and if they wouldn't make this little sacrifice whatever then they were often condemned to death and Marcus Aurelius just goes well it's just stupid you know it doesn't mean anything well it did And so many Christians died because they wouldn't do that little thing, which of course would have been a complete lie and a denial of the Lord. Now Christians also wrote extensively at this time, and there's a pretty interesting one. His name is Polycarp, and what's interesting about him is he was a disciple of the apostle john so we sort of have this direct lineage from jesus and then um his apostle john and then polycarp was his apostle so we have it you know sort of going straight back to the main source and his ideas they um this really shows that the idea that Jesus was God was not some later development. He, in his letter to the Philippian church that continued from the time of Paul, he affirms early Christian beliefs. And here's what he says. He says, I have greatly rejoiced with you in our Lord Jesus Christ, because you follow the example of true love as displayed by God, and have accompanied, as became you, those who were bound in chains, the fitting ornament of the saints, and which are indeed the diadems of the true elect of God and our Lord. And because of the strong root of your faith, spoken of in days long gone by, endureth even until now, and bringeth forth fruit to our Lord Jesus Christ, who for our sins suffered unto death but whom God has raised from the dead having loosed the bands of the, the bands of the grave but may the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ himself, who is the Son of God and our everlasting High Priest, build you up in faith and truth and in all meekness, gentleness, patience, longsuffering, forbearance, and purity." And you see here, again, very early on, he is testifying, and in this direct line of belief, to the belief that Jesus was Lord, he suffered, he rose from the dead, and he is God. Uh, Early on too, the epistle of Ignatius, and this was to the church at Smyrna, he was actually writing to the church where Polycarp was a bishop, he wrote this in 108, he said, In very truth, with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ, that he was the Son of God, the firstborn of every creature, God the Word, the only begotten Son, and was the seed of David according to the flesh by the Virgin Mary, was baptized by John, and that all righteousness might be fulfilled by him, that he lived a life of holiness without sin, and was truly under Pontius Pilate and Herod the Tetrarch, nailed to the cross for us in his flesh. And so, again, you can see these early, early solid beliefs didn't change. This is the history. This is what happened. This is what all of the church leaders were reminding their congregations was the basis of their faith. And then we have a very interesting affirmation of what Christian beliefs were early on by a man named Celsius. Now, he was an enemy of Of the church and he wrote something called The True Word and it was an attack on Christianity which Origen, one of the early church writers, has preserved for us in his work Contra Celsium and he is quoting the things that he said and as far as we know this was the first time an entire pagan work was devoted to attacking Christianity. Now he knew a lot about Christianity in fact some have said more than any previous pagan writer. He was the first to refer to the founder of Christianity by his name, Jesus, instead of just Christ. He knew many details which Christians believed about the life of Jesus. He talked about his virgin birth, the visit of the Magi, the massacre of the innocents, his baptism by John, his disciples, his miracles, his betrayal, his crucifixion, his resurrection. But he just he just didn't like it. He reasoned that if they worshiped Jesus, they couldn't be true monotheists, and he understood that if he could discredit Jesus, he would discredit all of Christianity. He wrote that the virgin birth was made up and Jesus' real father was a Roman named Panthera. Now he has no support for this, but it's interesting that that myth has carried down to even some of the sort of Christian conspiracy theories today. There were no reliable witnesses, he says, to the dove descending at Jesus' baptism, and that Jesus' miracles happened. He said that they, they happened, you know, there's so much evidence they happened, but he says it was just magic. And he dismissed the resurrection as, again, he said, you know, all these people say it happened, there's all this evidence for it, but it's just a hallucination. And it's very interesting that just in his disagreements of it, um, he really shows that this was the belief among Christians from very early, early days. He didn't agree, he didn't believe, but he said that's that's what they do, that's what they think. And they show that the core of the beliefs of the Christians were the same, were consistent with the biblical record from very early times. So, a little bit of a summary of the historical facts about Jesus. Based on repeated early witnesses about him, whether secular, political, attacking him, Christian, whatever it is, all of these witnesses are unanimous on the core events of his life. His good deeds, his miracles, his death, and appearances by him after his resurrection, and of the huge change in the disciples. Now, whether you believe that the Bible is a divinely inspired book or not, you must give historical Credible credit for the facts of his life. Again, I will tell people many, many times, you, you know, don't approach it first believing that Jesus is God, but just look at the historical record and realize that what is in the Bible is a true history of what actually took place. Now, another thing that is incredibly important is the extraordinary change in the disciples. They, at the cross, and Before Jesus died, they were terrified of the Jews. When Jesus died, they just ran and hid, and they were just scared little whatevers. Um, But later, after Jesus appeared to them, after he rose from the dead, after the Holy Spirit descended on them at Pentecost, as Christians believe, they were completely different people. And what's really interesting about this is for centuries, and if you were with us when we were studying the Old Testament, you know that nothing moved the Jews away from their way of worshiping God. The sacrificial system, from the Babylonian captivity, the wars of the Maccabees, the occupation by Rome, through thousands of years of oppression and problems, nothing moved them away from their way of worshiping God. But Literally, within a few months of being convinced that Jesus rose from the dead and that he was the fulfillment of all of Old Testament history, they left all of that behind. And just think about how huge it is, especially again, I, you know, if you were studying with us the, during this last year, this whole way of life, the religious system, everything about it meant more to the Jews than life itself. But Jesus changed all of that. So um, we have this incredible evidence that the person of Jesus Christ existed and that he did miracles, that he rose from the dead. Now, what you do with that, whether you believe it's magic or hallucination or whatever, that's up to you but we do have history that verifies that these things happen. Now, since people can't deny that he historically existed, and of course neither can other religions, but what's interesting then is accepting that he was a person on earth It's interesting how different people explain him, how different religions look at him. Now this is really important that you understand this because there is only one real Jesus. Now there are a lot of people whose name, for example, is Yvonne. My name's Yvonne. Uh, But there's probably only one Yvonne that is married to Paul, that lives at 36 Whitman Court, that's um, my uh, height and weight, which I'm not going to tell you, but the more details you see you know about my life, you can separate me from all these other Yvonne's that live all over the place. It's the same, and I'm not wanting to be flippant or make too light of this, it's the same with the name Jesus. Just because people say they believe in Jesus, is it the true Jesus of history and that the Bible talks about, or is it another Jesus? And what is so important Going back to our introduction, is Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But it is only the real Jesus that promises forgiveness of sins and a way to God. So we can't just say, oh, everybody believes in him. No, they don't. They believe if they're not talking about the Jesus of history, the Jesus that's talked about in the New Testament. It's a different Jesus. So let's look at how some different religions describe him. Hinduism, for example, looks at Jesus as a teacher, a guru, or an avatar. He's the son of God, as are others. His death does not atone for sins, and he does not, did not rise from the dead. Again, this is not the Jesus of history and the Bible. Buddhism, Jesus is not really part of the historic Buddhist worldview. Now Buddhists in the West view him again as an enlightened teacher. Buddhists in Asia believe again that he was perhaps an avatar, but he wasn't God. Again, not what the New Testament talks about as the real Jesus. Now of course in New Age, and that term is kind of not used anymore, but it's sort of just this general belief system of our world today. Jesus, people, almost everybody will say, you know, he was a good teacher. He was someone we really want to emulate. Um, yes, God was in him, but God is in all of us. And Jesus just did a little better at recognizing that. No, that is not how the Bible describes him. Now, in Islam, it's very interesting. They do describe him as a prophet. He is one of their major prophets, but he is not THE prophet. That is Muhammad. Now, Jesus, they do not believe was God, nor is he the Son of God. His virgin birth is like Adam's creation. They believe he was sinless and a worker of miracles, and he is one of the most respected prophets. But, the Quran is very clear that they do not believe he was crucified or resurrected. They believe it was a hoax. But, interestingly enough, they believe that Jesus, not Muhammad, will return to play a special role before the future Judgment Day Perhaps turning Christians to Islam—it's not really clear about that. Now, some historical comments on Islam. Mohammed, and, and this is important that, that you understand this, because a lot of people think that um, Islam's a very old religion, and actually, it, it isn't. Mohammed um, lived from 570 to 632 A.D. He lived almost 600 years after the death of Christ. He was born into a very polytheistic culture. It was on sort of a trade route, and a lot of Jewish and Christian tradesmen would go through there. He was exposed to monotheism and Christianity, but not in depth. Also, as far as we know, he did not ever read the Bible, read any scriptures. He was illiterate, and he had really no historical basis for what he said about Jesus. Now, very respectfully, um, he did talk kindly about Jesus, but he is not talking about the real Jesus. And so we we have to keep that in mind. In the Mormon Church, uh, the way Joseph Smith describes Jesus is he says that he was the first spirit born to our heavenly parents, Jesus Christ. And you see, he does not make him an eternally existing part of the Trinity. He goes on to say the appointment of Jesus to be the Savior of the worlds was contested by one of the other sons of God. He was called Lucifer, son of the morning. Haughty, ambitious, and covetous of power and glory. The spirit brother of Jesus desperately tried to become the Savior of mankind. And then they go on to show how but God the Father, who was the God in charge of this particular earth, he said, no, Jesus is going to be the Savior, and then Lucifer got really mad, and that's why there's been all this trouble in our world, which is simply not true. Um, God the Father, Mor- the Mormon theologian Bruce McConkey goes on to say, God the Father is a perfected, glorified, holy man an immortal personage, and Christ was born into the world as a literal son of this holy being. He was born in the same personal, real, and literal sense that any mortal son is born to a mortal father. There is nothing figurative about his paternity. He was begotten, conceived, and born in the normal and natural course of events." And what they're showing to too, what, uh, this is part of the entire theology, that mormons believe and this is one of the more famous quotes as man is god once was as god is man may become and basically that if you do all of the things the mormon church asks you to do that you too will become a god like jesus um Respectfully, that's heretical and simply not true. Um, so this, there's absolutely no biblical basis for these things. And you, you need to be really, really careful when you are discussing Jesus and things about him that you define your terms. Mormons believe that Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer, that he is not the eternally existing God. And you absolutely must, when you are talking about him, clarify who you're talking about. The problem, the bottom line problem uh, that I look at just objectively as a historian, is that all of these different religious views completely ignore history. They ignore what the historical record in the New Testament says about Jesus and what all of these different people that lived at the same time say about Jesus. Once again, you don't have to believe in him as Savior, believe in God, whatever. But don't say that these other religions can be right about him. You must say they're talking about a completely different Jesus than the historical person of the Bible. Now, why have all these things happened? Well, we were warned, again, in the Bible that these things would happen. In Second Corinthians, uh, Paul says, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your mind may be somehow led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. We were warned that there would always be false Jesus preached, and we must be ready. We must always, again, clarify which Jesus are you talking about. Now, it's our duty to know the truth, and we want to share it with gentleness and respect for those who don't understand it. And again, I encourage you just to, when you're starting out, just to do it on the basis of pure historical fact. We have the facts on our side, and we, but we want to share that with people because they don't know we also need it for what I talk about is the own dark night of our souls. All of us struggle. I know I have sometimes, you know, just you go through tough times and you think, is what I'm basing my life on really true? And this might not be terribly spiritual, but sometimes when I'm really in a, in a really depressed state, I go back to, okay, I spent all this time, blood, sweat, and tears to get my master's degree in history. Now, as a historian, what do I know about Jesus? Well, I know this, I know this, I know this, I know this. Now, based on the reality that this person rose from the dead, and a lot of people witnessed that, a lot of people verified that, it seems that that act alone... I should listen to him. I should be able to trust that what he said is true. And you see, again, Forgive me if I'm not being terribly spiritual, but knowing that in some ways I have these tangible things that I can hold on to, and then I will oftentimes get in a little bit more of a spiritual mood or whatever, um, I have found really, really helpful. So that's one of the reasons that I teach these things to many of you that already are Christians, is you need to know that your faith has a very solid basis. Now a couple of passages that are good to go back to that I really encourage you to memorize and know well. First of all, John 1, um, actually that whole chapter, but it starts out where it says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. Life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in Colossians 1, 15 through 20, it says, The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I love that. A lot of days I feel like I'm coming apart. He says, you know, in him all things hold together. And he is the head, I want to share a few summary statements here that I think might be useful. The first one says, Buddha never claimed to be God, Moses never claimed to be Jehovah, Muhammad never claimed to be Allah, yet Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy. Jesus said, Who convicts me of sin? Mohammed said, Unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. Jesus said, Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Now, C.S. Lewis has, of course, one of the best summaries of it. And you probably read this before, but I want to read it again because I think it's really great. He says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, after looking at all of these things, we have to look in the mirror and we have to sort of imagine Jesus saying to us, Who do you say that I am? Who is Jesus to you? I started this podcast by saying that this is the most important question that you will ever answer in time and for eternity and that's true Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, think about the things that I've talked about. Read the New Testament. I would encourage you to start with the book of Mark. It's one of the shortest. It was written for everybody, and it'll just tell you about the life of Jesus. I would also recommend looking at a book called The Case for Christ. It's by Lee Strobel, and it's really an excellent book where he was not only an atheist, but he was a crime reporter. He was used to really researching things in depth, and he took two years to explore the truth about Jesus. And at the end of that time, he said, like the Apostle Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And then, if you are a Christian, recognize what a wonderful, solid foundation you have for your faith. I encourage you to learn more of the facts of history of the early church, more about the Bible, spend time in it, read it, think about it. Know that you can trust that it is true history. Learn what the Bible says about Jesus so that you can share it with others who don't know the real Jesus, and you can share with them the promise of forgiveness of sins, meaning, real meaning and purpose in life now, and when you die, what C.S. Lewis describes as a wonderful life where every chapter is better than the one before, and it goes on forever. That's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson there in downloadable PDF format, along with other materials on www.bible805.com. Please do subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of the lessons that we have. We are getting towards the end of going through the entire Bible, and if you've been with us this year, congratulations. It is an exciting journey. Now, until next time, I'm Yvonne Prynne, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are in your spiritual journey to a growing knowledge of God's Word and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.